Welcome in, bienvenue, welcome to the Sylvan Horn. We are glad that you have found your way here. So grab a table, grab a drink, and join us. I'm Nilo. And I'm Justin. And this week we'll be talking about Magic the Gathering and its new crossover set, the Dungeons & Dragons movie you've all waited for, and Critical Role's latest comic about Not the Brave. This current Magic the Gathering set is really fantastic. They've done a, done a good job of getting into the D&D lore and finding ways to make cards that make sense with the properties of different artifacts of different characters. And I just really, really love it. I've played a couple of games with it and I haven't played Magic in years. And I ended up downloading Magic Arena and putting decks together and doing all kinds of stuff. So I cannot wait for this new set to come out. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I saw you on there playing Magic Gathering Arena, which slightly inspired me, but there's still no inkling for me to want to play Magic. I just want to own every single card from the set because I'm a D&D nerd and I've always respected Magic and appreciated Magic and I used to play. So I probably have a good majority of the whole set now and I'm still collecting for really no reason at all, except to have more. And when I heard they were going to go for the next set, which is going to be based on Baldur's Gate, it's called Battle for Baldur's Gate, I was ecstatic because one of my campaigns, you might know, is currently set in Baldur's Gate. I'm like you. I've not played Magic in years. And then this just inspired me to get into it. But I told myself, you know, this is fun. I like playing it, but I'm just going to collect the D&D sets because that's really what's drawn me to it is the D&D cards. And so I'll put every, whatever kind of deck I can put together and just play at home. And I think that it's going to end up tying in really well with Baldur's Gate 3, which we've talked about a good bit too. And I'm hoping that it means if this is coming out second quarter of 2022, that Baldur's Gate 3 is going to get out of early access and be fully there in second quarter 2022 as well. Yeah, and I love like how the, the tie is there to you know, Baldur's Gate 3. And it's mainly based on the piece of concept artwork that we got that was like a nautiloid floating you know, outside the city of Baldur's Gate, which is how the game starts, um, you know, taking you right into that. But all the same, how awesome is that going to be? Having these foil etched like legendary creatures that are like mind flare cards in your Magic the Gathering game in a commander set. I only know half of what those words actually mean, and I'm already excited for it. They knew what they were doing when they decided to put out a D&D set. They knew that us D&D nerds were going to want to buy a few and then look, oh, this is really cool and buy a whole bunch of so, so I, I will admit, I want to say like one last thing regarding this because we've hit our bullet points, but this is more of an opinion. When it comes to this one specifically, I feel like all nerds, all geeks everywhere are being targeted by the Magic the Gathering designers because I recently learned more about like what the secret layers are and they're like a five to six mini card series that are generally like a crossover reference. So clearly we had Dungeons and Dragons. I just learned, and I think it's still upcoming, but there is going to be a secret layer set for literally Fortnite. I saw that. Yes. And it blew my mind. I feel like we're going to see like the next one's going to be like the Pokemon crossover. Or right. Like the crossover. Just like all these weird categories. And I kind of love it. But I'm also feeling a little less special on the D&D side. I'm just like, well, that was I thought it kind of made sense. It was really cool. And they did it like perfectly. And I'm addicted. But I'm going to have both. Excitement and shame when I start collecting Fortnite cards, too, and have to have them all. Right. I kind of like Fortnite, kind of like Magic the Gathering, but how do you explain that to someone? Oh, yeah, yes, I got, got the Warhammer. Magic the Gathering card for the fucking pinata. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got Warhammer coming out and several other things that they've got coming down the line. And Ooh, Warhammer. Um, 
So, but I'm I'm going to stick with just the D and D stuff because again, the main reason that I got out of Magic when I did was that it's way too dang expensive to deal with <laughs> trying to be competitive with it. So now it's just I want these because they're cool, and I decided I said I will buy some packs until I pull a T mat, and I got my T mat. I'm done with this, and other than maybe trading some of the ones that I've got doubles of to get a few more packs, but I'm not spending any more money on it. It's just too much. So glad I didn't have that same requirement. I pulled TM out on like my fifth pack. Yeah, I remember that. Packs in now. <laughs> I wanted drips and, and Tiamat. So once I have the t- both of them, I'm good to go. Because I, I got Loth, and she still evades me. Don't have Loth. So yeah, I have her token card that's like the aura of Loth or something like that, but yeah, or yeah. the emblem. But I don't have her. So that may be one that I'm trying to trades. trade for. Yeah, you pulled Druid, so she's staying away, which means she's, I'll probably pull her, and we'll be mortal nemesis. Oh, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll put some decks together, and we'll play Dritz versus Loth. I'll gladly throw cards at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think Dritz or Loth are going to be in the Dungeons & Dragons movie, but I wish they both would be, because those are two oh. of my favorite characters in the lore. But I'm actually excited about this movie. You know, the last big Dungeons & Dragons movie that came out had... A pretty good cast, headlined with Jeremy Irons, and was terrible. It was good for entertainment's sake. It no. wasn't good for movie's sake. but it No, was it wasn't even good for entertainment's sake. It was terrible. <laughs> it's so um, bad. Well, at least um, your transition into this piece was better than that movie was entirely. So good job on that one. Um, small, yeah. Like very low bar to hit. but Lo- Really low bar to hit there. <laughs> And, you know, I, I've watched it once and said, I don't have to watch this one again. But this new one, I'm really excited about. It looks like it's going to be excellent. And <laughs> yeah, you've got Chris Pine. You've got Justice Smith, who was great on the get down. And, I didn't watch it, but I've seen all of but it. Yeah, you need to watch it. It's a fantastic show. And he was really good in that. Um, Reggie Jean Page was good in... Bridgerton, I've seen way too much of Reggie Jean Page. Hopefully, he's more clothed in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Or not. Or not. <laughs> well, there's some people out there that, you know, but everyone's into something. Give I would like that. to watch this with my kids. I don't care. They don't, they don't want to watch Bridgerton. It's educational. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking but, of people you've probably never seen before, Hugh Grant, lesser known name. Yes. Inspiration for LTL there with Hugh Grant oh, coming yeah. in. <laughs> but I don't think he'll be playing the Notting Hill-esque character since he's the villain. But what if he did? I know, <laughs> that would be great. But yeah, I mean, it's it's got such a good cast and the guys that have put it together, the writers, directors have done some really good stuff with Game Night and some other films that they've done. <laughs> and I like what they've said, that it is an adventure movie with comedy. It's not going to be, take itself a hundred percent serious, but it is going to be looking and going, how do we take D and D and make it into a film? And I think that's perfect because most of the people that I know that play, it is some level exactly the way that they said it. It's not an out and out comedy, but it's an action fantasy movie with lots of comedic elements. And I think right. that is how most of us probably play D and D. Well, I want to believe that. I know it's not true, but I, I, I want to believe that. I find there's like a, a weird connection too. Like, so the first movie came out at a time where D&D was still going through its own identity crisis, trying to transition from this mechanical thing to also taking it seriously from a lore narrative side of things. And I feel like 
this movie now comes out and it kind of shows that change in the D&D atmosphere. It's very like, no, it's we're going to be serious with the jokes interlaced and, you know, we'll have our breaks from the tension for a comedic effect versus we are just going to laugh about everything, joke about everything, take nothing seriously, which is kind of how you got the very awkward and weird first movie. Yes. And so I feel like this is kind of cool in the way that it now shows where D&D's at now. Because like now we have things like Critical Role. That is very serious with hints of comedy. But D&D used to be the very opposite. Like, yeah, I'm going to go sex up the barmaid, you know, with a song of my people, with all my buddy. And it was like, okay, that's funny once. Not for 20 years, which is how I had to endure it. But now we're at a time where people are like, I walk in that bar and I brood in the corner until someone asks about my dead father. <laughs> Right. It's like still kind of funny, but ultimately cooler and deeper. So I hope I this think, movie explores that. I think Critical Role is a good thing to look at because I am sure that these writers looked at some of the streams that are very popular mm. like Critical Role and said, what are the people that like to watch Dungeons and Dragons played looking for? And also looking at things like the Marvel films and saying, mm. what works in that? And it is, it is this combination of adventure action with the comedy woven into it and not just completely overtly silly and it looks i mean it's going back to what made indiana jones great action with some comedy woven into it it's those kind of things that have been there really since the beginning of film but you look and see what are those things that came out in the 70s 80s 90s that are still popular today and a lot of it is going exactly the way they say it they're trying to build something that's going to last yeah, I, I hope so, because that's one thing D&D has needed for a long time, was a movie that stands the test of time, or even stands longer than a month. That would be nice. <laughs> right. Um, and so with that one, too, like, the set, uh, they've, like, finished up the wrapping of this, but it's planned to release, what was it, like, closer to 2023, I believe. Yes. Um, for the theatrical release, anyhow. But that being the case, I'm really excited for it. Mainly because I'm excited to not get my hopes down. Weird thing to say, but it's happened so many times in the past. And I just hope that someday somebody pays me $11.5 million to play D&D like they did Chris Pine in this film. Checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of playing money, making money off of D&D, we get back into what we mentioned a minute ago with Critical Role. And these guys are just raking it in in any way they can, which I think is great. I, that's how, I'm that's so happy for them. <laughs> And speaking of that, too, um, I can't get over how seamless your segues are. So good job again. They're something of note. Um, see how smooth he did it there. But with that, yes, we go back to the raking in the money. Wasn't the Chris Pine we backed off of, but it comes to Matthew Mercer and the gang and being able to take what is literally a group of people sitting around a table, making up a story and making it entertaining for both them and outside people to then translating it to an actual comic book series about one of your players. That's my dream. I already buy cool stuff and get like custom work done just to show off the coolness of my players. And that doesn't get to be shown to anybody. That's literally just me doing it to them in front of my friends. So to ha have a comic made around a character and like flesh out that backstory is like, I think any DM, but also any players kind of D&D dream. And here they are doing it, showing us how. I'm so excited for it. Yeah, and I've read the Vox Machina Origins comics. They've done really well with those. And they just announced that in April, we're going to have the Mighty Nine Origins, Not the Brave, coming out. Where we're going to get to hear the 
backstory of a character that we followed for several years. And that's going to be the third in the Mighty Nine series. The first one coming out is going to be Jester in October. And then we'll have Caleb in January. And each of these looks like they've got kind of a, a different style when you look at what they've done with the covers and really fits hmm. in with what we know about those characters. I think it's going to be really, really good. I mean, if they're going to do all the players and then eventually like Matthew Mercer's backstory in a comic, how, how did he become the god of this world? <laughs> right. I think that would be fantastic. I mean, if that's how I'd do it. <laughs> and, and I'm just, you know, we still don't know exactly when campaign three is going to start and what that's mm -hmm. going to be. But these guys are so good at coming up with fantastic characters that we actually want to read a solo comic about. And I'm excited right. to see what they come up with next and what set of comics we're going to be looking at for campaign three. Yeah. And I think that really goes to show too, just to Matthew Mercer's, um, you know, likability and ability to make these very crafty characters that fit right in and are real cool. His recent character, I keep forgetting his name, like Darius or the other one? Because that even got me confused. But yeah, it was Darius and Dariax. Yeah, isn't that confusing? Um, <laughs> but in Exandria, like that character was just flawless out the gate. You're just like, I already yep. love him. And he's only said like one word and I love it. So yeah, with that in mind, I can't wait to get an Exandria backstory. I feel like that would actually be real cool to see more of those characters too. And which we probably will get it eventually. We want to talk to you guys about gathering feedback from your players specifically um, by doing surveys after a series of sessions so that you can kind of gauge what's going well, what's not. So tell us a little bit more about that, Neil. Uh, yeah, so when it comes to like, gathering feedback, and the, the way I do it is generally through routine surveys or of such, is important to me, and I, I feel like it's important to everybody, but I can only speak from my experience. It's important to me because it's your ability to get a pulse on how the game is and how it's being received. And if you don't get that for a long period of time, you're kind of in the dark. You never really know, like, how are they taking it? Do they like this? Or are they just putting up a front and going along with it? And so this is my ability to keep myself honest and also to keep my players honest. So we're all engaged. Kind of like we have the actual running the game. And then on the sidelines, what does everyone think about that game if they look at it, you know, standing next to me? Do we like it? Do we not like it? You know, how satisfied have you been recently versus how you were before? It just serves to create like a timeline of experience that allows me then to gauge, did I go in the right direction or the wrong direction? Is it working for the majority or just the minority? And make, you know, decisions like that, that I can then better the game. Um, and so with that, I have like a, a couple of questions here that I kind of throw in my surveys and they've been different over the years because it's more important that you do the surveys, less important about the specific questions. But there are a couple that can really help you create a benchmark type of system. Um, and so with that, I mean, FTL here, but also Justin has gone through several of my surveys now. And so like, how do you feel when like a DM asks you feedback over what you guys are just coming together to play D&D, &D, but taking it to that level of seriousness so we're not wasting our time? Well, I'll say the, the first time, just because I'd never done it before, I was kind of like, what are we doing survey for? Because I'm sitting there trying to just read it in general of, oh yeah, we all are having a good time and not really even thinking about it. But I've actually really enjoyed it as we've gone through because it's made me think a little bit about what I like and what I don't like. And, mm. you know, oh, over these last few sessions, has there been something that I was like, this just didn't really work or this really did? And I've really, 
I've really thought it was great. And I think especially in doing an online campaign, doing it the way that you've set it up with, you know, setting up a Google form, putting it out there is so good for this, even though we do usually have at least two or three of us that are hanging out after our session for a while that are talking. And I think we get a pretty good feel even then from it as well. But this just adds to it and gives you something to be able to go back to and say, oh, you know, Justin thought this or Josh thought this or whoever it is that you're getting it from. Matt thought this. We can look and kind of see what's working for different people. And I think most of the time you probably have a feeling of what where that's going to go even before you get it. But has there been anything, whether in this campaign or another one, that surprised you when you've gotten a survey back? Oh, yeah. No, when it comes to surveys it's best to not look at them or expect anything. You just kind of want them to answer honestly. And so over time, generally when I thought it was one way, and I'm like, yeah, I felt really good about all this stuff. Then I'll get the survey of that one person that at first I'm just kind of reluctant because I'm like, oh shit, that score isn't what I was hoping. And then I see their comment. And with that, it's like, yeah, it hurts sometimes to get feedback, but you give them the survey because you want the honest opinion of that person without any repercussion. Just like, I really truly want to know what you are thinking and how you feel kind of giving them, let them have a chance to be heard, I would say. And with that recently, I even got a comment that I had thought things were going great. And then one of the comments, um, what followed the beginning of the survey, I have like a rating scale of like one to five and of everybody, they were the only one that went four, which already told me like most people go with four. Cause it's like, nothing's perfect. Never go five in that weird right. mentality. And I'm just <laughs> like, well, this is my D and D game. Be nice. But the four, was then followed the comment of like things they don't like or things that aren't working for them. And it was, it was a very fair feedback. And so I, I don't want to name them because like the idea of the survey is to not be anonymous it right. out on anybody. Right. Like, and it's, it's not technically anonymous, but I don't want to call people out for, you know, them being honest. I don't right. think that's fair. So when it comes to like this, like their comment was straightforward and I could see it maybe being circumstantial to like one or two sessions. So I'm monitoring it. And by next one, I will see if that improves or gets worse. But I keep it in mind, and I have little notes that I essentially have up on my OneNote every time we start a session that tell me and remind me of the feedback I've gotten and you know where we need to go and what I need to be working on. That way, I keep it in my mind fresh. And it all comes from these surveys. So with that, now our next session, I already know what to change. I'm already thinking ahead of it. And hopefully, I can get him to a five because he was a five previously. And so with that, it's like, creates these perfect benchmarks to know where your players are at and know that you're just not speaking into a void thinking like, these are my dream fantasies. And then they're over here like, yeah, those are kind of like nightmares, man. Those suck. You don't know that because when you ask them on camera or in person, everyone's going to give you that gut reaction of like that. Oh yeah, it's, it's good because they don't want right. to offend you. And that's why I'll give a whole week or so to for let you guys like fill this out without me in your ear, without seeing me. So that way is just truly you and your experience, what you remember. And that is a very honest feedback. Well, and I think, too, it allows us as a player to be thinking about what we're doing as well and not just so it's not just feedback to the DM. It's it's me bringing feedback to myself, you know, because I was sitting there, I think not this last one that we did, but the one before and you and I actually talked about it. But I was worried at a couple of times. I was like, I feel like I'm stepping in and taking the spotlight at times and I need to step back and make sure but i didn't think about it until i was reading through some of the questions on that survey and working through myself of oh you know what do i see as an issue and it was and it was that but it was an issue with me not with what you were doing 
Right. And I think that's the other half, like the survey system. Um, and like, honestly, I've never been part of a game that had surveys. So it's just something I adopted because I was trying to find a way to create a more intuitive, but also like healthy type of game environment. And this way I can be in tune and you guys can have like a chance to have true amnesty and give me your opinion. So you all know you're heard. I look at every individual account. Um, so I think it's another like interesting thing for the survey system to it trains your your players how to give better feedback. Right. And that's the hardest part, because, you know, if you don't have any tool or any system in play, every player is going to say, yeah, I had fun at the end of the game. And no matter what you say, they'll tell you what you want to hear. And then they'll go home and then you'll have a whole week of little to no contact. And then you just go off and what, do what you did until eventually that person's like, yeah, I'm out. I'm, it's not fun anymore. And you essentially missed all of these signs and things you could have worked on to make it better because they didn't tell you that something wasn't working. They'd kept it to themselves or they just let it eat themselves inside. And so with that, I want to be the DM that's always heard and can also hear everyone at the table because I'm, I'm a player too. And I, I want to always create like in the game. Yes, I'm the God out of the game. I am no different than any of you. So right. You all have the same respect I, I expect to get. And so, yeah, with that, it, it, I guess in summary, it does teach them how to give better feedback. Because like you said, you then have to think about the question in your own context. One of the questions that was on our last survey was, what's your favorite moment of the campaign so far and why? Which to me was one of the best questions that was on there because I think it gives you an opportunity to be able to see what each person is really buying into, what they're jumping into. So I'm not going to ask you to tell me who said what, but what were the favorite moments of our campaign so far? I put me on the spot here. All right, let's see if I have a good memory. I don't. So <laughs> when it comes to that one, I do remember one. And like I put that question on there. And if you notice, that question just showed up. It right. wasn't on the previous ones. And that was mainly because we were still going through this period where I wanted us to kind of keep the focus on the moment and ahead. Where like in going back, it's like it's hard to have a favorite moment and the first couple of levels where everything's out leveling and it's kind of scary and crazy. We had a couple, but all the same. The recent one is exactly why I love this question, because you never get the answer you expect. Everyone right. may have had a cool reaction for this latest scene, but then you ask that one character who you like, oh yeah, he's a blood and carnage type of guy. And he's over here like, oh, I love the, the ceremony and sitting in a chair watching the preacher. And you're like, holy shit. <laughs> Thank God I asked that question, because I didn't get the response I expected because it was emotionally charged at the time. But that's why surveys are great, because that person then gets to process it, gets that form, and he's like, I love the ceremony. And you're just like, that's what I want to hear. The guy covered in blood is the flowers guy. You would never know that. So, yeah, no, that's every person who answered. Only one person answered what I kind of expected. Sorry to call you out. It was you. But when it comes <laughs> to everybody else, um, and that's mainly just because I think I know you and your character quite a bit more. Right. Yeah, when it comes to like everybody else, they all gave me answers that almost felt like you all agreed to throw me off. Right. So, so like one person, like the very opposite of who I thought he was as a, a physical person. So I was like, that's amazing because I thought I was being rather flamboyant in that moment. Um, but all the same. Yeah, no, everyone is great about that because generally when you look back at your campaign, if you get asked a question like this, you have to then catalog your moments and be like, nope, that was my favorite one. And with that, that tells me a lot. Because now I can figure out what you liked about that moment. And then I can figure out, does that match my data of who I think you are? And if it does, now I know what to double down on. I know how to give you another favorite moment. 
Well, I think for me too, that question worked out so much better than like a couple of the other questions that you've asked on all of them are what are the things that you enjoy about the game that I should keep doing? And what are the things you dislike about the game that I should change or improve? And that question of what my favorite moment is allowed me to say that in a different way that I thought was easier for me to say than, hey, I like this and I don't like this because that kind of goes into just sort of one word quick answers. And this made you have to kind of think about it a little bit more, but gave you probably just as much info on those two questions as they did themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of like why, too, um, that question showed up now. It was because um, it, we all have a lot to think about now. And so I didn't want to just be like, what's your favorite moment? And then list them. Because then you're not thinking, you're just choosing from the gut reaction of a couple items on a checkbox or, you know, or a radio thing. But when it comes to like, here's a text field, I'm not giving you any answers. You tell me what comes to mind and why. Because when they have to do the why part, they tell me a lot, but they're also learning themselves because they probably never thought about it. Like, why did I enjoy that so much? It was probably because of this, this, and that. Or the suspense of not knowing something. And it's like, okay, I now have the recipe for success. And so if you're interested in using a survey, we'll share with you the one that Neil has been using and you can add to it, take away from it. But also, you know, maybe you're not going to do that, but you still want to make sure that you're getting feedback from your players, that you're paying attention to, to what is going on and what is working and what is not working in your campaign. And one of the ways that I've done that in the past, and I know that Nilo does this too, is just very much paying attention to your players while you're at the table or while you're gathered around on Zoom or Discord or wherever you're gathering online to when people are really engaged when you see them interacting with the NPCs and interacting with the environment and interacting with each other, where you can really start to get a good feel of what is working for each one of them and what is not. So what are the, some of the things that you look for when you're playing? Um, so yeah, when I'm like DMing and I'm like, you know, spewing off my own descriptions or attempting to describe something and whatnot, and setting up a scene or a moment or an action or even a character talking, I generally, like Zoom's easier because it's everybody inside one little screen. And so from there, who's looking at the camera? Who's looking at the monitor? Who's looking down at their phone? Like, that's the easy one. And then the other one is the people who start to like move their mouth, but don't. They're like trying to say something, but they are figuring out what they're going to say in response already. Like, you can tell they're so eager, they're ready to interrupt me, but they're trying their hardest not to. Right. And it's like, that tells me already they are hooked. And then, of course, there's, you know, when someone's looking at a monitor, but they seem like they're kind of dead emotionally, they're just not really moving much. It's kind of like someone like surfing Tumblr, you know, or porn, just, mm. And you're like, well, that's a pretty good indicator that they're not hooked. I'm not saying the things that get them. And they're the right. first person I'm going to be like, so, you know, um, you over there. What do you think? What do you What do you want to do? And they're like, Oh, uh, um, uh, shh, I, I wasn't listening. And they will tell you. And so, like, that's a quick way to call them out. But that wasn't your question. I just wanted to share that because that's happened recently. Sure, more than I would like it. But we all live, you know, crazy lives during a hectic time. Um, so when it comes to that, I would say the best things to look for are the people who are engaged in trying to pick your brain. When people ask the DM questions. That's my number one indicator that like, all right, even if I'm not giving them enough info, they are hooked enough that they're going to get that info from me. 
they're going to ask questions so they can do this cool thing and they're thinking about everything. I can tell our minds are hooked versus, of course, someone who doesn't ask any questions and is like, um, I do stuff. Well, OK, you're not helping anyone. Like You have stolen the fun here because you have chose to not listen. Um, so hopefully that answered the question. I feel like I completely butchered it, but no, I think so. And I mean, that's the kind of thing that I look at too, is, you know, when I've been doing in-person games and you've got that person that's picking up their phone and looking at it and it's like, Oh, you're not on D and D beyond looking at your character sheet. You're rolling through, like you said, you're rolling through Tumblr or Reddit looking for memes or whatever it is. And drives me crazy. Me too. And you've got that situation. You've got those that just don't seem to be buying in. You can just tell that they're bored because they're looking at other stuff. They're getting up. They're doing this and that and the other. I'll say the one time, and this was the first time I DM'd for this group, we had a guy that was really, really tired. And at one point, I noticed that he had gotten on the floor of my kitchen where we were playing on the kitchen table <laughs> and had fallen asleep with the two cats wrapped up around him. So that was where you're looking at it and going, this campaign is not working for him. <laughs> <laughs> but the cats are. But the cats are. the cat, And the cats were loving that. But I think, like you said, you're just looking for those visual cues, those verbal cues of engagement. You're looking to see body posture and all those things. So just pay attention if you're DMing to what your players are doing. And if you're playing, pay attention to what the other players are doing because you can bring somebody in too. Because I know plenty of times where even in our campaign where we've been playing and I've noticed that somebody either, either I've just noticed they haven't done anything or said anything in a while or that they seem to have be drifting off somewhere where I'll in character say, what do you think about this? Or here, let me (laughs) give you something to do because everybody else has been doing something and I haven't noticed you doing anything in the last 20 minutes. And like I said earlier, sometimes that's because, you know, we've got some people that really get into the role play and we can kind of take the spotlight in a moment and you just have to pull back and hand it to somebody else. Let's let you go do something. You go interact and see what's happening. And that's a whole topic in itself, because when it comes to, you know, keeping everyone engaged and whatnot, and everyone sharing the responsibility of keeping this a collectively engaged, fun activity we're all doing. I think a lot of the skepticism, too, generally is that like, not really skepticism, but I think kind of a stigma. It's the DM's job to keep everyone focused and responsible and engaged, which inherently is not true. The DM right. is already doing so damn much just to you know, have you at this table to tell you these stories and this world they've built and all the things they've planned, they shouldn't also have to be the ones that, you know, corral the cats. It's like, no, as adults, if you're interested and want to play, you have to show that effort. It literally is your only job. Come with your character ready to engage a fantasy world that's been set up for you, planned for you, and built around you. And all you have to do is engage with it. And if you fail that, I don't always feel like it's the DM's job because really at that point of all the hours spent to just prepare, I often feel like it's less my job and more what you're telling me. And if you're telling me that, but your surveys never reflect this, but you constantly give me these negative signals that you're not interested, well, then I'm going to have a talk with you. Like, I'm not going to keep pulling you in 
just because you don't want to be the one who actually steps forth and does anything. But I get shyness. That's a whole different matter. I'm talking right. about the players that even when called upon, even when you're giving them stuff, or even when you're trying to by proxy get to them, they just never really hook in. And it's like, well, if you're going to be despondent the whole time, I'm not really sure what I can do for you. Uh, and that's different. But I think the blessing when it comes to like having players who are very self-conscious, but also trying to help be the moderators of the fun of a game, you've been great because very much that's what your players need to do. They need to keep each other in the group all hooked in because, you know, in the fantasy setting, that's your survival. If the, the barbarian, your only tank, is on his phone on TikTok, you might die because when it comes time to actually do something, he might not know what's going on and die because he forgot you need to hold your breath because there's poison in the room because he wasn't paying attention. Because, you know, Giraffe73 on TikTok is showing some funny cat video. And it's like, well, that's not fair because I call on you 20 times and you answer, blah, blah, blah. But here we are when you needed to know something and your group counts on you and you let all of them down. So I feel like the group, too, needs to be like, hey, Barbarian, why are you looking at your Claymore? We have a problem. And then kind of pull them in. But you've been good about that. Calling on the players who seem like they're drifting because I'm one man. And if we all do that at the table, well, then we are six people keeping everyone accountable. That's a lot easier to handle. Right. And I would say in general, I think our whole group's pretty good at that. We kind of oh, yeah. feel right. out when somebody's sort of, you know, off in something, you know, when we're distracted or something like that and pull each other back in. So we've talked on, you know, how we get the feedback, but how do we implement the feedback once we have it? Yeah. So the feedback itself, of course, being on the in-game experience and whatnot, and some like some of the questions I had asked are directly tailored to it. So I think your questions can matter here. Because if you ask feedback like, are you having fun? That's harder to implement because that's not really a question that lends itself to a good answer. But asking like, what can I do to improve your immersion? Well, that helps me. Because if it's like, oh, descriptions, someone did say that this time. Like, you know, you've done plenty of descriptions, but just a little bit more of the senses and like, what do we hear and smell and feel? Which I will admit, I, I sometimes don't do that as much as I want to. So I was like, that is a very fair thing. And I personally want to be better at it. So that worked out hand in hand. So next time you're going to smell, you know, the um, blueberry pie in the kitchen um, with the scent of iron from the blood on the floor and things like that. And like, yeah, you've made the game better for everybody because your feedback was very valid. So that'd be a way that you can do it. It can be very one-to-one. Sometimes you'll get feedback that's not easy to implement, but the alternative is monitoring. You just monitor of like yourself and them and see if that is a problem or if you can understand what they're saying and go from there. But yeah, so when it comes to implementing, it's, it's just that. If a person says we need to have more descriptions or more available to us so we understand what's happening. Or another comment that I had recently gotten was we sometimes break the immersion and go meta and start joking about something that then lasts like an hour. And therefore, it's hard to get back in. I'm like, yeah, no, that legitimately does happen. And I break it too, which is why I know that's valid because our session zero was avoid meta only because it kills immersion. And it's a lot different when you have like three people at a table up to six. When you have six people, if you break into meta, you got to get six people back into that immersion. And that's a lot harder. And so it's things like that. You just take it at stride and figure out what you can do to fix that. And some feedback you don't need to implement. Some feedback is just kind of a, a progress of where things are at, and you just, again, monitor it. But you kind of have to gauge that for yourselves. But ultimately, yeah, 
I think I pretty much just said you implement it by implementing it, but hopefully that was a better answer than I'm thinking. Well, what do you do? I think the the other question here, and you kind of hinted at it there, but how do you decide if you're just not going to implement something? What would be the kind of thing that would come up that either um, this is just not going to be something I'm going to implement or that you would never implement that? What are the kind of things that would make you think that? So, I mean, there's always the dumb stuff. I'd, I've never really gotten a survey that had a fully dumb answer, except for like almost kind of dumb. Um, I have once had a, a survey that said, do less voices. And I'm like, I, okay, maybe I do one too many voices because in my world, every character has a voice, but I also am a voice actor on the side. So I enjoyed doing it. And it was a moment like, I'm not going to implement that because one, that's well, kind of rude. And also two, not very detailed. That's not helpful. I can't work with that in any valuable, meaningful way. So it was just like, I'm going to talk to them about it and figure out what they meant. And that was like, okay, if you can't implement it, you can go and get clarity. If they can't give you clarity, well, then you can monitor it at best. But aside from that, it might be something you just push to the side and see if it reoccurs. But But I think that's key is talking to them. If it's not something that you can just sort of tweak and do a little bit differently is going in and figuring out, oh, what exactly do you mean here? Where is the real disconnect coming from? (laughs) There's some miscommunication coming here because I think I'm doing this and you're saying that I'm not, or, you know, going and saying, I can tell you're just not engaged. What can I do to, to make you more engaged? What's going on here? And that's where you're just showing that you respect one another. And I think that's a big thing is saying that, you know, we play from, you know, three to four hours, sometimes even longer every Sunday night. And I want to know that the people I'm playing with respect me and my time if I'm going to be giving them that time. Every right. And it was something in this case that was agreed upon in session zero. And I was very frank about it. Like, you know, I will respect everyone here and I expect that in return. And communication as a person is one of my biggest values. That is always, it's not something that can ever not be a part of what I do. So when it comes to that, if a player gives me feedback like that, I always go to them. Because I mean, the feedback on the survey, yes, anonymous to like the world. But when you say, you know, submit those answers to me, I will respect you. You won't have any like, you know, repercussion or fear of me like retaliating at you or like, oh, he said this, so I'm going to be extra spiteful. No, I never do that. But I will go to them and be like, I need to understand why you said that. And like, maybe you can tell me how I can fix it or more specifically, what's wrong that you would, you know, cause you to say that, or like maybe like, what's it doing to your experience? And maybe from there we can figure out what you're actually upset about. Yeah, and so that makes perfect sense. Just that communication coming in and talking. Have you ever had anybody on a survey complain that you killed their character? Um, one did it as a joke and I think he was half joking, half not, but it was kind of a funny way to tell me how upset he was. Um, but we talked it out anyway and ultimately he was okay with it, but yes. And I've had people also thank me for killing their character. I've lived a long DM life. I've had a lot of weird things happen. Um, one didn't like that my NPC was hitting on him. That was a weird one to get. Um, he already agreed to anything that could have, could have happened. But when I finally pulled the act, he was like, it just gave me like, like chills on my spine. I'm like, yeah, I know, baby. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, um, 
you know, it's always difficult when characters die and when you're putting people in those life and death situations. So I don't make it easy for you. Absolutely not. So we want to talk about how we handle character death in a D&D campaign. And I think we both agree that death should always be a possibility. Right. And I think we have to go in and it goes into what we talked about with session zero. Let's lay that out from the beginning. If you're going to play a campaign where death isn't possible, I think that's okay to do. I don't think that's not going to fit where I want to be. I want there to be some real danger in there, not to have so much plot armor on everybody that nobody can die. So we want to say like we did in ours from the very beginning, there is a possibility from session one that you are going to die. Yeah, straight up. There is no, there is no setting or session that we will go into from this moment forward where you are not liable to die through some act, something. Death is real. Treat it. Treat your character in a serious manner unless you want to lose them. And sometimes it won't be as much of an option as it is a dice roll. And with the dice rolling, we all agree what the results are and you understand what happened. I'm not trying to kill you. My dice are. And that's been a big conversation on the Twitter sphere over the last week has been about character death and specifically those that were saying, look, you know, a PC shouldn't die because they slipped down the stairs and saying that the only way that they should die is in some kind of heroic act in the act of battle. What do you think about that, Nilo? I'm inclined to agree. I mean, because like the idea, too, is like to respect everyone's time, there is a bit of the meta you have to bring into it. Like, yeah, if a character falls down a stairs, well, the player just spent four hours every single week for seven plus months coming to build this character and telling this tale. And you thought it was okay to kill them with a banana slip joke. That's a moment where I'm like, okay, that's you could have tweaked it to give them a better time. And just say like, oh, they took a couple less damage, they're alive. Making death saves, that's a little bit funnier. Because a banana peel, put them on stairs, now they're death saving. Um, but even then, you can still change it in a way that that's not the heroic end of, you know, Barbarian the Great, slip down the stairs, go into the bathroom. Because well, like, what tale is that? You don't feel good about that ending, unless they chose to do it. But I do also believe in like the epic tales and making everyone significant, which is hard. And I think you can have the DM who's like, yeah, death happens a lot. You'll have to keep re-rolling characters and keep going until eventually we get to the end. I'm more of a, I want to get one or two of your characters to the end. You might have a death, but the next character will be just as important as the first one. So we honor it. Kind of like real life. Yes, death happens a lot. But for the most part, everyone you know generally gets to walk along with you up until, you know, pretty late in the age. And I mean, obviously we're not dealing with monsters and dragons, but I like to think I am just in a different form, taxmans and, you know, other things. So when it comes to things like that, I feel like you should honor them and give them at least a death that is organic and understandable. And maybe like that's the difference. Understandable is like that line where I have to find comfort in. So like Veer, obviously in our campaign, just last session, technically two sessions ago, he did die. He died at the mistake and really cool moment of Iftiel. Mm-hmm. Which is funny how it all comes full circle. Me and uh, Matthew were talking about that yes, the other day anyway. So FTL had this bright idea, and I thought was really enjoyable, of putting silver from one of the Leonin tribes down the throat of a, um, a bearded devil. That bearded devil, after several turns, essentially was affected by it, almost like allergy, but it essentially decomposed his form from the outside in. And he kind of went supernova. 
and one character dove on that supernova, and that supernova threw another one back and knocked a door off its hinges and essentially hit our character in the face and pulled him all the way back to the wall. And this door was going like as fast as a car at that moment. And he took an iron door to the face, and he's also a really not a lot of health character. And so he essentially gets knocked out and then fails all three of his death rolls because no one knew he was death rolling. Or death saving, I should say. Uh, mainly because other people were in that hallway or not really understanding what was happening in that moment from their perspective. As players, we knew, but as characters, it was a matter of like, oh, they ran out the door and someone closed it. Great. Door blows open, knocks a character out, and they're like, what the hell? And so while worrying about if Daxton had died, the guy who dove on the supernova, Veer was not noticed until it was too late. And then we started the next session of like, hey, man, sorry, but you're dead. Veer has passed on. But this is where I kind of enjoy the character death side of things. I, it's, I guess perhaps a bad habit. I don't know. I think it's making the story better. But I like to give an option. It's like, yeah, you're dead. But we all like Veer. You like Veer. And I think he has a lot of potential still. And so uh, limited time only, uh, you know, exclusive sale today only, you have one possible chance of coming back that you do not have to take. Ball shows up and is just like, I want you to do my bidding. And if you agree to that, I will pull you back up into the material plane myself and put you right back in your body. You will get a chance to live again for your friends and tell your tale and not die through an iron door. Or you can die permanently, and he'll make sure that your name is erased from history. Kind of his own way and my own way of making the lore easier to work out. But also that of everyone then has this weird moment of knowing that they knew someone, but they can't quite conceptualize them anymore. And they have to figure out who did we forget, which I thought was a very cool possible way to go with the story. And with that, he chose Ball, because I think a lot of people would. Um, and, and it was a matter of he could have said no, which is something we saw if TL the myth, the man, the myth, the legend, later on, was so very close to accepting Osmodeus's deal. And at the very end, Osmodeus just said the words you couldn't handle um, about people you respected, and you were just like, hell no. Yep. And so with that, it's like, all right, see you in hell. And so well, and, that's the power of it. And one of the things that you did in Beer's death was actually something that I had mentioned in one of the surveys. As I had said, for my character... If I get into a death save situation, I would rather you roll those than me because I think for me it adds a moment of just fear and anxiety of I don't know what's happening. And nobody else does either. They know that I'm down. They know that they have to do something, but they don't know if I'm sitting at two successes or two fails and somebody better do something to make this work. And like talk about immersion, like you're in this moment dying and it truly feels like dying. You have no idea how right. long you've left. You don't know which words you last. You just know that the death isn't dice rolling. Death is very real for that character in this moment. And so with that, it kind of, it gets rid of that extra block of like, I'm dying, but I made my save. So I, would be co I have two more to go versus, you know, I, I don't, this might be my last word. You feel the pain and agony and your life is starting to fade out. And I just tell it through description based on where you're at. So like as Veer lost his first one's like fuzzy, hazy, you feel that <laughs> and like your life's starting to kind of show before itself and then nothingness. Right. And I was like, that's the difference of it. So you can tell those uh, stories versus like, oh, you got a 20, good job. 
All right, two more. Cool. Good job. Exactly. And I mean, it's it's a really interesting way to do things. I, you know, it was just something that I preferred for me. And I think everybody kind of liked the way that it, it worked out. Everyone there. was so on board with that. That it, was really it, good feedback. It worked out really, really well. And so the other thing that I see often that people will kind of complain about, and this is kind of a 5e particular thing, is that death is too impermanent and difficult to happen in 5e, which on some level I think is false. And on some level I can kind of agree with it. I think on the reason that I think that it's not all that good of an argument is if you actually play rules as written when it comes to both the ways you can die and the ways that you can be brought back, it is not, it is pretty easy to die and it is pretty difficult to bring somebody back. When you get into the situation of how much the components cost or where you might find them to do a spell like Revivify or Resurrection. And, you know, but I think most people are playing these days where if you have that spell, you can just do it. And there's not any sense of having to have those components and everything. And I think that's where it looks like it's too easy because that spell's there and you can just always cast that spell. But you can't. You've got to have the components to do it and has having a, for a reason right having a diamond that's worth at least a thousand gold is not that particularly easy to come by and then i even like what we see matthew mercer do with how they deal with death in critical role mm-hmm. and every time a character dies and is brought back it's more difficult and everybody has to participate in it not just the cleric who can cast that spell and I think that adds a whole lot to both death and resurrection. Yeah, and I think in that matter too, like I will always go the route of, well, death is very real. And when someone dies, it's only then that you realize how hard it is to get them back. And yeah. so that's why I like Matthew Mercer's side of things. And even like with this, like Veer could have said no and you know disappeared. And then you would all had to have found a way through your combined wills and like your thoughts to reconceptualize who he was that we lost. And then figure out how to actually get him back. And so I like that because then it makes you respect death a bit more versus like it's this thing that happens. It's like, well, it's very real. That character will never be back unless you go and find his soul or go and pull him from whatever plane his soul went to or make that deal to bring him back. And then everyone has to deal with that choice. But they get their friend back. And so it's kind of different with Ball who saw opportunity of like, you messed up. And you're going to pay for it for eternity unless I bring you back. Because Veer wouldn't have known better that, I, well, my friends could revive me. You guys have never really talked about that. And so far, the dead should stay dead is one of our party members' literal motto. So it's like, well, that's probably harder to think that they'll bring you back. And that's a real thing, too, if someone has a moral opposition to it. Of like, is it the same as reviving somebody as a necromancer brings a body up? And it's like, well, what does Kelmvor think? And that's a whole situation, a discussion she'll have to like figure out. And so I feel like you can really layer it into the story in a way that means something, but it shouldn't be like, oh, he died, revive. I will and never I th- allow that. That like trivializes it. And I think that's the key thing is whether we're talking death or bringing somebody back, it's got to fit into the story that we're telling. It's got to add to it. And with the death that we had, that we dealt with in the last session, that absolutely happened. And 
that's what makes D&D to me great is it is just such a wonderful storytelling platform and looking and seeing how we can build those characters in that we enjoy playing, that we enjoy hearing the stories about and how everybody around the table can come together and create something bigger than what either one of us could come up with on our own. Oh, absolutely. And that's like the last thing I had too when it came to character death. The first time or like the the big moment where a character dies, I bake in, going back to what I was saying before, I bake in that player agency of like, okay, you have two options, but it's a choice. You can't just come back to life because, well, you died. However, you can accept that or take, again, that limited time offer, perhaps a deity or may have even been like some, you know, let's say Graz just approaches you and is like, I have a proposition for you. It's, it's, of course, something I put in there just for you to have that option on. But it's also so you get to choose and tell us, do you want to continue being Veer? Do you want Veer to exist again or not? You don't have to just die and be gone forever. And so I feel like that agency, I, I kind of afford them to help tell the story in a better way. Because now a person who chose to come back for his friends is a lot more story potential than hit by a door, we forgot about him forever. Because, like, no one wants to end the story that way. No one wants to close the door, per se. Yeah, and that's what I think is so great about what happened in that moment is not only does it build out Veer's story, but now we have all of these characters, especially Ilftiel and Morty, who were sitting there going, you made a deal with Ball, and now you have to do what he says? That beautiful moment. Because he told us that. And you're sitting there going, uh, Ilftiel, he says it. He's, I'm sitting there going, I would not tell anybody if I had made a deal with the devil. I'm, you know, that's not a <laughs> thing that I'm going to throw out there to everybody. But then he's sitting there going, can I really trust him? Right. Which when is a very real thought. He's already chaotic. He's already a little bit, you know, on edge. And now mm-hmm. he's got ball even more in his head than he did before. And that is so cool when it comes into (laughs) how we tell the story and what happens going forward is there's going to be this second guessing at all times about whether he's doing something because it's the right thing to do or whether the ball has some agency in what's going on. So it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting story piece. And that's where we want to be. If a character is going to die, it needs to have something to do with the story. It's got to be a story moment. And, or they just have to do something stupid that they decided to do, like Veer did the session before this, which is jump down a 15-foot hole and not knowing what's at the bottom. Yeah, if you trust fall a shaft, there is a moment I will let you die. Because you know what you're doing. That never made sense. There was no logic to it. Yes, you trust fall, or trust fell the floor, and um, it caught you. Good luck. There was no banana peel there. That was not a DM thing. That was a player choice. And that's the way I play as well. If you choose to die, then I'm going to let that happen. That's a different discussion altogether. Like if you be dumb and you know you're being dumb, then I'm going to let you be dumb. You, that's your agency. I won't take it away from you. Which is how to respect something all the way to the extreme. If your character's like, I stabbed myself. Well, good luck, buddy. It's going to be a hard life. Um, but yeah, when it comes to this, I want to really touch like, on that last moment with FTO and, you know, Veer coming back, and then you all see that tattoo, and you, of course, you read that wonderful little fine print. But it was like the moment that everyone in the room said something about it, like, you did what? And everyone is having a shock factor or kind of like a, we're just glad you're okay. 
And then the silence happens. And then it all pans over to Iftio. And then Iftio like puts his head in his like palm and is just like, oh fuck. And it was like that beautiful <laughs> moment, like was so raw and so pure. Like I just bust out laughing. I even like wrote it out on notepad. It was my favorite moment the entire time because I just didn't expect it. But that would be the time FTL loses all composure and just goes very raw. Just like, what? Fuck. Right. Like, That's a lot that's been happening. You're dealing with your own problems. And then that happens. And it's like, are you kidding me? We would love to get some feedback from you on what we're doing here at the Solven Horn. You can reach us via our email, which is in the show notes, or you can find us online in several different spaces. Some of those places include Twitter, maybe well, really specifically, but it's going to be at Sylvan Horn on Twitter, as well as you can find me at, at Nilo Cortex. And you can find me at Justin Woolard. Pursuit, I, I'm not sure that I made the best choice in gifts to bring home to Gloomsbane after this latest mission we went on. Uh, do you uh, get her something appropriate or something? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's very cool. So it's, it's probably inappropriate. It probably is. But there's just something about displacer beast kittens that I just cannot resist. And when there was one there to take it and, and bring it back out of the Feywild and into my home was just great. I thought she would love it. It's very cute. Um, I named it Sparky, but I don't think uh, she likes it as much as why, I do. Why Sparky? Well, you remember, he's got that like almost blue iridescence running down its back, and it just reminded me of some kind of electrical spark. Uh, I would have gone with, like, blue steel or something, but yeah, sure. Oh, I like that. Blue steel. Trademark. I'm going to change it. its name to blue steel. It doesn't I know you cannot. Name. It's a cat. They don't know their names. I mean, if it displaces itself, it wasn't me. If you name that cat blue steel, I'm taking him. <laughs> well, it's Spark. Thank you for coming with me to the Feywild. Um, okay, well, don't really thank me. You, you bribed me with mushrooms that you never gave me, so uh, perhaps it's not done yet. Where are my mushrooms? Oh, you said the Feywild had amazing mushrooms. The Feywild does have amazing mushrooms, and, and that's why we have to go back, because... Um, what? Well, I mean, the whole point of me having you come was we don't really deal with Cambians very often in the Feywild. Uh, and I don't deal with Feywild mushrooms very often. This is very unfair, Lindir. Well, I'm going to make sure that you get those Feywild mushrooms, but, you know, when, <laughs> when you get a creature that's, that's half devil and half Eladrin and you get this strange cambion that comes out of it, it's, it's nothing that I can take on on my own. I don't understand that kind of thing the way that you do. So you brought me along just because I'm half devil. I brought you along because you work for a devil and you deal with devils like I deal with the fae. I mean, we're all dealing with devils, but now I feel very used. Now I really want those mushrooms. Well, you come with me, and like I said, I mean, we caught him, but then he got away again, so we go get him again, then we get the mushrooms. Wait, so you 
misplaced your displacer cat. No, the displacer kitten. The displacer kitten is at the house. The cambion is somewhere. Oh, the cambion. Not where it's supposed to be. Well, we need to bring the the displacer kitten. Because when I I'm on mushrooms, I like to have something to touch. And it's going to be pretty fucking cool when that thing disappears on me. I'm just saying. I'm going to make a kid in a candy store like, where to go? That can happen. I have a hard time trusting you. Oh, you know you can trust me. We've, we've, we've been over this so many times. You know, we just didn't happen that. to be in the best part of the Feywild for mushrooms at the moment. I'm just saying. We've done a lot of things together. And uh, the one thing I do know is that I, I can't trust. I love you. I, oh, I, you're my brother. But what I do know is you're going to continue to say you can trust me and then continue to forget my damn mushrooms. So I'm going to try something new. I want mushrooms up front because, one, the Feywild is infinitely more eye-opening when you're on mushrooms. That I'm guessing. true. Hey, Merkin, mushrooms? I, I can bring the mushrooms. Wait, the mushrooms are here? Well, I mean, not all the mushrooms are here, but, I mean, Merkin's always got mushrooms. I mean, can't you tell? I, mean, I had th- theories, but I didn't want to assume anything in the way I don't want you to assume that I always have bowls of blood on me. I mean, that's rude. But, uh, Merkin, why didn't you tell me we had mushrooms? Uh, Lindia said only for very special occasions. I am always a special occasion. Well, well, how about we do this? We take, um, we both take a mushroom, and then we head into the Fairwild and go after this abomination of a creature, this fake ambient. As long as we bring the Displacer Cat. My yeah. demands are only going to grow from here. So, we pop up north, we grab the Displacer Cat, we pop a couple of mushrooms, we go to the... Now it's a party. And Merkin, you just hold the fort as you always do, and, and we'll be back soon. Well, I'm definitely interested to find out what happens when these two get on some of these wild mushrooms in the Fae. But that'll have to be for a different time. I'm going to take a couple and just hang out here. But we hope that you'll join us next week. Auf Wiedersehen. Oh, so many pretty colors.